uh, the book of Acts. And uh, we will be continuing in our sermon series, uh, Refresh. We're in Acts chapter 19 this morning. So uh, this morning, as we think about this text, I want to ask you to think about what, what is it that comes to mind when you hear the word revival? When you hear the word revival, what is it that comes to your mind? Uh, maybe for some of you, it is uh, the idea of like a revival meeting. Like in some church traditions, a revival is like a, a week-long meeting in a tent somewhere, and they bring in a guest preacher, and all sorts of things happen within that. Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, the term revival kind of hits you the wrong way. You're like, I- I'm not so sure about that because I've seen some trappings related to that that I don't like. Maybe you think of... When I thought of revival, I, th- I think often of this verse, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Anyone seen that before? Like, posted a lot on social media, right? Now, normally, uh, I- I'm not going to critique everyone's uh, social media theologians, but... I'm going to critique this one. Uh, not, I don't often take that time. But, all right, so, so just this one. Um, normally, people quote this in reference to, like, some sort of moral revival that must take place in America. Now, certainly, God works, and God works in this way. Like, if his people will humble themselves and pray, God will actually act. Absolutely. Not denying that at all. However, to apply this passage specifically to America has some problems because this is a passage about Old Testament Israel. And America does not equal Old Testament Israel, right? The church equals Old Testament Israel. So not America, if my people, America is not my people, right? And it's really important that we see that because we'll make a lot of mistakes around what revival would look like if we don't see that. We don't see how that works. Oftentimes, I think when when things like this are used to talk about revival here in this place, we think of a moral revival among unbelievers that will make my life better. Right? If we're honest, this is what we think about revival. Like, there's a lot of chaos and sin in the world around us, and if there was revival, there would be morality that would come upon those who do not follow Jesus, and guess what? If that happened, my life would get a lot better. Well, we think in terms of uh, immorality disappearing. And, And often we have a particular kind of people involved in our minds when we think about that. Maybe those caught up in drug abuse or in crime or in some sort of very obvious way in which they're disobeying God's law. But what about the respectable sins of God's people? What about the idolatry that lies hidden in our hearts? Would those two not be shaken? You see, revival will always begin with the church laying down their idols. And often we want revival to exist around us while we get to hold on to our idols. And it can't be that way. 
If there's ever going to be real revival in a biblical sense, it's going to come in three ways, truthfully, powerfully, and radically. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the book of Acts. And so, as you have all that in mind, my question for you this morning is, so do you want a revival? Because let's look at the book of Acts and see what it looks like, and then ask ourselves, are we actually ready for that? That's right. (laughs) All right, so Acts chapter 19. We're going to start here. Uh, Maybe, maybe we are. All right, all right. Uh, If it doesn't move, I'm going to have to have you move that. All right, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. They replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Well, what's going on here? We need to understand what's going on in this passage if we're to understand what does it mean for the, the uh, revival to come truthfully. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you know that th- this feels very similar to the Acts chapter 2, right, in Pentecost where the believers are gathered together and yet the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen upon them and then the promise of the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they speak in languages that they did not know. They were known languages, but they did not know them and others heard the gospel in their own language spoken by someone who didn't know their language. And it was evidence of the power of God at work and evidence that something new is happening. There's something new here. The gospel, the message of forgiveness of sins is going to the whole world. You don't have to be Jewish to be part of God's people anymore. This is open to the whole world. Now that happens, and then we see there's a similar thing that happens, right, with the Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. And when the gospel goes to the Samaritans, when it crosses that barrier, there's another Pentecost-like experience, where the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they believe, uh, or they believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and then they speak in tongues, right? But it's this like second event Pentecost type experience there with the Samaritans. Similar thing happens with Cornelius, the first Gentile in the scriptures who comes to faith, right? Cornelius comes to faith, Holy Spirit comes upon him, right? Now, So the question is, is this the way this always happens, right? That you believe in Jesus and then at some other point you experience the Holy Spirit. And I have already argued, and you can look back at my other sermons, no, that's not how this works anymore. And so the question is like, well, then what do you do with this? Like this clearly seems to go against what you said. No, 
Let me tell you why. All right, so, so what's happening here? Well, we have to understand, what does Luke mean when he says, Paul found some believers? What does he mean by that? Does he mean in that, that, that these uh, folks were, uh, that, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that God had come to dwell in them? Well, clearly not. And yet, also, they had believed something about Jesus, right? They had not rejected the Messiah. They were like, yes, we believe in the message that John the Baptist was giving, that the, the Messiah is coming and has come in the person of Jesus. And yet, they hadn't yet experienced the Holy Spirit. So, so how does that work? Well, in the book of Acts, you need to remember, this is a massive transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And there isn't this like sharp line between those two things, right? The disciples that follow Jesus, could you call them believers in the Gospels? Yes, I think so, right? Now, have the Holy Spirit fallen upon them yet? No, not yet, right? And so these are folks who had heard this idea of Jesus, but they hadn't been told the whole story yet. They hadn't experienced the gospel witness of the new covenant. And then they did with with, uh, Paul, and they were baptized, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So so this is one of those instances where we can't press too deeply in this and say that this is the normal experience for Christians post uh, the book of Acts, right? There's a big difference between what we would say is prescriptive in the uh, Bible, meaning do this always, and descriptive. The book of Acts is descriptive. Not everything in here is prescriptive, right? Unless you're like, hey, God is totally cool with this whole thing that happens with Ananias and Sapphira. It's prescriptive. Lie to the Holy Spirit and then die, right? Like, no, it's clearly not, right? It's descriptive. Now, are there things that we can learn from this and glean from it? Absolutely. But it's describing something that God is doing in the coming of the new covenant and breaking into and the ending of the old covenant, right? This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about, right? The whole book of Hebrews is like, hey, there's this new covenant reality in Jesus. Don't go back to the old covenant. But you know what was still happening at the time? The temple was still standing in Jerusalem. The temple doesn't get destroyed until A.D. 70, right? Which is the marker of the end of the Old Covenant. So we're in this sort of in-between period of like, hey, the the old is ending, the new is coming, and there's this sort of transition period between that. So it'd be really bad to take from this a theological position that you can be a believer in Jesus and not have the Holy Spirit. Because Paul declares for us later in the book of Romans You got the Holy Spirit, you got Jesus. Don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Jesus, right? So within this, there are always going to be sections of Scripture that are difficult for us to wrestle with because it's simply most of it is narrative describing the way things happen with a particular aim to teach something, absolutely, but not so that you would take every little detail of those things and say, we've got to do it this way. So it's an important thing. Now, here's what's also important about this when it comes to revival, right? Because we're going to see what happens in Ephesus here in a moment. But setting the stage for it is that revival will come truthfully. 
Enthusiasm isn't enough. These 12 folks were gathered together. They were enthusiastic about the message, right? They were enthusiastic about the baptism of John, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a big deal. And yet they were misguided a little bit. They needed some help honing their message on the experience of the new covenant in Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. You see, we can't just say, hey, if revival is going to happen, we need a a general uh, 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 excitement about the things of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to say, I'm excited about something related to God? Well, what do you mean by God? Like, do you mean Jesus, who came in the flesh and died on a cross and rose from the dead, right? So revival is going to come truthfully, connected to the truth claims about who Jesus is and what he's done. Truth about Jesus matters. But also, proclaiming them rightly matters, right? Paul then goes to the synagogue and preaches boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. About the kingdom of God. Truth claims about Jesus and also uh, the, the kingdom of God. What does it mean for us to live in a way under God's rule and reign? All right, so if revival is going to come, it's going to come truthfully. Secondly, if it's going to come, it's going to come powerfully. Acts 19, starting in verse 9. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. Uh, this, this is the, I think this is the first time in the book of Acts that the, the, the kingdom of God is described as the way. The church is described as the way. Now, this word is hodos in Greek, and it simply means a path or a way, or a root. And it is used by Luke intentionally to describe the Christian life. You see, the Christian life cannot be understood as an emotional event or a conversion experience that's merely an intellectual assent. Like, I agree that there are these true things about Jesus. If your faith is only an intellectual assent for you, it's not Jesus who you're following. Because following the real Jesus invites you to come along with him into the kingdom of God, which says as much about what you do and how you live as it does about what you believe. This is the way. That's right. See, that's where they got that, right? They got it from the early church. It's not all that impressive. Uh, All right. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, This is the way. All right. Uh, So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years, so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews were traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. 
Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The story of what happened spread quickly through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. If revival is going to come, it's going to come powerfully. Powerfully. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes, there are powerful things that happen. In this instance, we see uh, miraculous things happening. Now, again, this is descriptive and not prescriptive. But in the coming of the new covenant, we would imagine at the start of the coming of the new covenant that there would be an increased spiritual warfare meaning an increased presence of the Holy Spirit to cast out demons and to uh, perform miraculous healings, all of those things. Now, I'm not saying that that does not happen today. I certainly believe that it does happen today. I think we should be cautious about how we describe it. I think we should be cautious to, to investigate and to look into the word and make sure miraculous things are connected to the word of God. But I do think it does happen, and I do think it happens most often when the gospel is breaking into a new place. When the gospel breaks into a new people group that has never heard the gospel, there is often a lot of demonic activity and a lot of Holy Spirit powerful activity that happens at the same time. If you speak with missionaries who are in uh, places among unreached people groups, they will describe these things to you. You see, the gospel is not this thing that is just these intellectual set of doctrines, We believe that there is real spiritual battle, that there are real things at stake. And so if the gospel is to take root, real things will happen. But not just real things in terms of like casting out demons and miraculous healings, but what also, what other strongholds of the enemy would break if revival were to come? What cultural lies are so deeply embedded that it would take the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome, right? One of the things that we can learn from this uh, priests and uh, this group of uh, priests who come and they're trying to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons, right? They're not believers, but they recognize there's power in the name of Jesus. So they're trying to use the name of Jesus to overcome others, and it doesn't go well for them, right? Be careful, to just play with spiritual things. God does not mess around with those things. He's not going to be mocked, right? There's real stuff happening. But here's what's crazy, right? That stronghold could not be broken. That man was able to overpower them and run them out. Why? Because they were not rooted in the Holy Spirit. These folks were not using the power of the Spirit to Uh, cast this demon out. They were simply trying to use some uh, magical incantations with the name of Jesus included to overpower him. It required the Holy Spirit to break. What are things in our culture that feel so deeply embedded lies of the enemy that if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something, it's not going to happen? 
I think certainly two things that come to mind right away is uh, white supremacy and greed. They feel like deeply embedded lies of Satan in our culture that the power of true revival would actually break. And a sign that true revival would be happening would be that those deeply embedded lies would be broken. Over-sexualization and violence feel like deeply embedded lies of Satan in our culture that the power of true revival would break. The question is, do we really believe the gospel comes with power to say no to sin and to break chains of bondage, both physical and spiritual? Like, do we believe that the gospel has real power, that the Holy Spirit can really overcome things, not just out there, but also in me? Things that I'm like, do I really, can I really say no to my sin? Well, if the gospel is powerful, then yes. Paul would say you are dead to sin, so you can say no. If it feels like a chain that is holding you back, do you believe that the gospel is powerful enough to break that chain? Do we really believe in that kind of revival? Right? Not waiting on the miraculous like Paul's uh, uh, handkerchief miracles, but actually saying, actually, I think that kind of power is real, and I'm also going to apply that to how I live my life. Often we wait for the miraculous to happen around us and refuse to allow the miraculous to happen in us. But revival would be waiting for the revival to happen in us. Paul warns in 2 Timothy, they will act religious, these folks that you should avoid. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. He's warning Timothy that within the church, there are going to be folks who will look religious, who will have all of the trappings of religion, but will have no power for godliness in their lives. They will deny the very real power that could make them godly while faking godliness. Revival would look like us not faking godliness, but experiencing godliness. It would come powerfully. Finally, revival would come radically. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. See, I like the NLT translation because it updates for us the monetary value to show us, because otherwise, if you're, if you're reading another uh, translation right now, it, right, it probably says something that you're like, I don't know what that is, right? And you're like, okay, well, I wonder if that was a lot. Several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. It spread widely and had a powerful effect. You see, remember I said, I think often we think about revival in this way, that moral revival would come among uh, non-Christians, others who don't uh, follow Jesus, and that that moral revival among them would make my life better. But biblical revival is a little bit different. Conversion for sure, absolutely. Many who had become believers, 
But it's far more radical. And radical in two ways. The first of which is that the Christians will actually radically follow the way. If we're going to see real revival, Christians will actually radically follow the way of Jesus. Look at what they do. They give up their idols at great cost to themselves. At great cost to themselves, they give up their idols. And it's a radical cost. I mean, that's a radical change, right? To not just to publicly identify with Jesus, but also to publicly identify with Jesus in such a way that you're saying, this thing that used to dominate my soul, I'm getting rid of. It doesn't matter how much it costs, I'm getting rid of it. So like when Jesus said, if your left eye causes you to sin, you know, like poke it out, right? He's saying, actually follow me. Like if you're gonna follow the way, follow the way. If it's costly, you still follow the way. You still follow the way. Now it's radical in a second way. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. You see, remember I said, we think that if, if revival could just happen in this land, it would make my life so much better. Tell that to Paul, because it's about to not get good for Paul, right? Revival means Christians following the way, and when Christians really follow the way, they will stir up what late civil rights icon John Lewis would say, good trouble. When Christians really follow the way, good trouble comes. You see, when Paul describes the end of the age, right, when he says we're the, when the last days come, according to the fullness of the New Testament, this is the last days, right? Post Jesus's ascension to Jesus's return is the last days. So anything it says about that time frame is going to be true, right? So is there going to be massive expansion of the gospel? Yes, Is there also going to be persecution and suffering? Yes. The way of wickedness and the way of godliness will continue to grow until Jesus returns. That's what Jesus said too, right? He said the wheat and the tares are gonna come up together and then at judgment time they'll be separated. Both are gonna grow. So this idea that if we could just have enough conversions and then the world would look so much better. Now, again, I'm not saying that the world wouldn't get better if there were conversions. It absolutely would. It would also get harder. It would also get harder. Trouble developed concerning the way. Now, here's here's the thing we got to know. What kind of trouble is going to come when Christians follow the way? It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept... Many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. Imagine the boldness of that statement and the irony. Handmade gods are no real gods. How could Paul say that? How could Paul say that this thing that I crafted myself is not a God? 
And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm not just talking about the money that we're losing. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Articus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. They grab some of Paul's companions and they go to the amphitheater. And the text goes on to say that for two hours, they continued to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It is easy to stir up a crowd when you combine uh, the uh, pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of religion to do wicked things. When you combine the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of religion, you can easily stir up a crowd. But what is the thing that made Demetrius angry? Is it really that his God is being dishonored? Is it really that his God is being dishonored? No, it's the fact that his pocketbook is getting hurt. But what does that mean? It means that so many people had been convinced that Jesus was God, they stopped buying idols. They stopped buying idols. What would it look like if revival were to happen in this day? What are the idols of this age that would be dismantled? What if the gospel message resounded in our city? What would change? Who would gather together the people of influence in our city to say, hey, we've got a problem here. These Christians are no longer indulging in idolatry and it's hurting our business. You see, the gospel message, when it comes to a place, there's this inherent tension, right? We believe in uh, helping the city thrive, right? We are exiles. And so we take from the words of God to, to Jeremiah the prophet and the exiles that says, seek the prosperity of the city in which you dwell. That's very good. And yet we also know we're not going to give ourselves and our wealth to idols. We're going to remain pure. So there's this tension. We want to provide thriving for the economy around us. And yet also we want to know what does it mean for us to pursue the way? What does it mean for us to lay down idolatry? Well, some, not all, but some of the idols that would be affected in our day. Power. What if those in positions of power and influence prioritized the marginalized so much so that power was no longer a means of gaining wealth, but rightly used to help all thrive? Certainly, lots of people in power would gather together and say, wait a second, this is not working out for us. We're, being, we're, we're losing our wealth from power. White supremacy, as I already mentioned. What if those who make space for white supremacy and racism couldn't do so anymore because a revival of affirming the image of God in every person was gripping people? What if there was no longer an appetite in our culture for white supremacy. 
That's what revival would look like, that there's no longer an appetite for it here. Sex and romantic love. What if sex stopped being able to sell? Right? Have you heard that phrase that sex sells, right? Advertisers use sexual imagery all the time to sell things that have nothing to do with sex. It's very odd, right? Like we use sexual terminology to describe things that are not sexual. Why? Because we have an idolatry of sex. What if we were not held captive to the passions of this age, but longed for a better city? So that it would no longer be profitable to sell that way. What about politics? The church is often seen as a voting block to be manipulated and used for the wealth and benefit of political power. What if the church actually said no? Like what if the coffers of political action committees dried up because the church no longer donated to those things but actually gave its wealth to helping others? Like, what if that was no longer the case? What if people gathered together and they were like, hey, we got to figure something out here because Christians no longer believe that politics is the way to preserve the kingdom of God. So now we're in trouble because guess what? We make our livelihood off of convincing Christians that politics is the way to bring the kingdom of God. So now we're in trouble. Like, this is a problem here. If Jesus is king... That means there is no other king for Christians. Now, I'm not saying we don't get involved in political action. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we are not held sway in order that we would give up our moral convictions for the pursuit of power. It's very important. We can easily be manipulated to say, guess what? If you don't, we will lose everything, right? This is exactly what happens to these guys, right? Demetrius says, your God is going to be dishonored and we're losing money. But what do I tell you? Your God is gonna be dishonored. What do I really feel? I'm losing money. Be careful, be careful. Entertainment. What if we weren't so easily made into consumers of entertainment? Right? We can't even get our news without it being couched in the language and feel of entertainment. What if it stopped being such a moneymaker because followers of the way showed the world there's another path towards intimacy with God and a family community that meets our deepest longings better than vicariously living through the imagined lives of others? What would that look like? Sports. What if the world wasn't led by an idolatrous concern for sports? Remember, all of these, I'm talking mostly to myself, okay? Particularly this one. There's a difference also between enjoying creation and the goodness of God in all of these areas and an idolatrous allegiance to such things. Actually, this pandemic has exposed a lot of that, right? Exposed a ton of this, the collision of an idolatry of sports and an idolatry of wealth coinciding together for the expense of human life, right? See this on display all the time. Do we care about the uh, reality of human life or do we care about wealth 
And do we use sports to gain which? Watch how those things are manipulated and be careful about your own hearts and the lives of others who are affected by it. We could go on to talk about comfort, technology, all those things. But I wanna center in on one last one, wealth, because I've talked about it quite a bit throughout this. Do you know that in our culture, we have whole industries created to make money off of debt? (laughs) Yeah, you guys know that, (laughs) right? But here's the question, here's the question, all right? (laughs) What if the demand dried up to create money off of debt? (laughs) Because people began following the way of Jesus and gave up the pursuit of unnecessary material goods for my own benefit and lived simply by radically centering my life on Jesus and flowing from that came generosity, service to the poor and vulnerable and living within my means and wisdom. And what if the making of money off of debt That industry dried up and got angry because the teachers of the way told you that your life is more than the clothes that you wear and the things that you purchase. But that your treasure is found in generosity and not in things. That there's a coming day when the real treasure of the earth would be revealed and it's not here. What if they, the teachers of the way, the followers of the way, had filled the whole city, the whole region, the whole country, the whole world with this teaching? What would that look like? See, what if we actually took the teaching of Jesus seriously when it comes to wealth? You know, often in the church, uh, and this is why I want to hammer this, because I think greed and Uh, the pursuit of wealth, and the love of money is a respectable sin that we allow Christians to endure all the time. You know, we will talk often as the church about sexual sin and sexual immorality. Jesus speaks very little about that. He does speak to it. I'm not saying we don't speak to it, but he speaks a lot more to money, a lot more. He says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. See, we got to hit this hard because we breathe the air of our culture, right? And so we often follow the same path, right? So when the crowd was easily stirred up to say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, we might say, great is the dollar of America. And we might say that out loud, and we might just say it in our heart. But Jesus cares a lot about your heart. That's why I care about this thing, right? We cannot be like Demetrius, who tries to serve money while also faking service to a fake God. It's all fine until the cash flow is affected. So if you want real revival, better check your pocketbook or your bank app. No one really has a pocketbook. What is that? I don't don't even know, right? You better check your bank app, right? Because here's the thing. We've been walking through the book of Acts, right? 
And we would say revival is happening all throughout the book of Acts, right? People are coming to know Jesus in unheard of numbers. And good trouble comes. But what is something that marks every time that community is gathered together? What do they do? Well, they establish, they appoint elders, and they give generously. The very beginning, right? It's people are selling things because there are people in this place that have need. So if we're really wanting revival to come, we wouldn't make money off of the idea of revival. We would give money to the poor and marginalized. That's what revival would look like. And if that's beginning to happen, it would happen so much in a particular place or location that those who make money off of our idols would get angry because they'd stop making money off of our idols. Now, all of that, I want to return to my original question. So do you want a revival? Do you really want a revival? Are you willing to pay the cost? Jesus tells us to count the cost before we endeavor upon following him. It will cost us. So why do it? Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. This is maybe my favorite parable of Jesus. What is this treasure? It's Jesus. And the followers of the way have discovered, I found a treasure that's better than anything the world can offer me. So I'm willing to follow him and give of everything I have because he's better. I'm, I'm taking everything out because I want that treasure. That's the only way this happens. Why would a revival come truthfully and powerfully and radically? Only when we center on the kingdom of God. What did Paul preach, right? Said he preached boldly about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God like? Hey, there is a treasure and his name is Jesus and he is available to you and you can take it without charge. It's free of charge. And so I'm going to take everything I have, all of me, and I'm going to lay it down to run after that treasure. Because he is greater. This is the way. It's a journey. But the destination is even better than the journey. Because at the end, we get Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. True revival will not settle for superficial spirituality or emotional experiences or intellectual faith that will ease my conscience just a little bit but not experience the true power of the Holy Spirit. It will long for the Spirit to come in truth, power, and radical kingdom experience. So when we say, let's pray, your kingdom come, let's be ready to lay down our idols and stir up good trouble. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are faithful. You are good. And so, Lord, we come to you needing you. We pray, God, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. 
Jesus, you are the treasure our hearts were made to long for. Help us to see it, to see you as that treasure, to fix the eyes of our soul upon you, to pursue you at all costs. Jesus, would you be honored in our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.